Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. So two weeks ago, we talked about canceled sin, how the record of debt that was stood against us with all of its legal demands and obligations was set aside by God by nailing it to the cross of his own son. Amen? Our sin is canceled. It's gone. Last week, we talked about deadly sins. We, we talked about how our sinning, even as believers, still has like this distancing effect for our souls in the presence of God. In other words, if God's presence is, is full joy, sin can keep us from joy. In other words, sins are kill joys, right? We talked about that last week. It can kill our joy in God. So if sin kills my joy in God, then what do we do? What do I do? What should we do? Do we do nothing? Do we just sit back and, and relax and try to ignore it, maybe? No, 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 no. We listen to people like John Owen, in his book called Mortification of Sin, he said, be always at it whilst you live. Notice the King James, whilst. Cease not a day from this. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing who? You. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Primarily your joy. Primarily your joy in God. So John Owen says that we ought to be killing sin. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to do what with our sin? Defend it. We defend it. We hide it. We protect it even sometimes, right? If you don't know that about yourself, uh, like I apologize if I'm revealing something new to you, but, but it's true. I, I do it. Um, in fact, one of the ways that I've learned to describe sin that we protect, sin that we defend, sin that we keep in the quiet, in the dark, and don't let anybody in on, I call those pet sins. Pet sins. Like, you know, you, you have your favorite pet. It's, a, it's a, it like, like just the ugliest animal that you've ever seen. Like, I don't, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not good with dogs, but just the ugliest dog you've ever seen. And you defend it, you protect it. Nobody likes it. Everybody's frustrated with it. It's so annoying. It pees on everyone. But you, you keep it and you make because you, you love it, right? You know, have, have you heard of the, the story of the, um, there, was a, there was a guy in New York City who lived in a really small apartment who fr uh, bought a Burmese python at, at, at infancy and he raised it. He grew it up for years it got to be 13 feet long. One night, it got out of its cage. The next morning, neighbors found the snake wrapped around the corpse of its owner in a pool of blood. You thought that, that was going to be a fun illustration, didn't you? If you do nothing, or if you feed your sin, one day it will overcome you. We can't continue in it. It will continue to grow and grow. We mustn't give it the time of day. John Owen says that we ought to kill it. But is that what Scripture says? Is that how Scripture tells us to relate to our sin? Remember, two weeks ago, we learned that we have died to sin. We learned that we were once dead in sin, 
but now we've been made alive in Christ. We were once in sin, but now we're not, and yet sin still is in us in a way. So what are we to do about the sin that's still lingering within us? Well, I think Romans 8 provides an incredible answer for that. Let me give you some context before we get to our passage in verses 12 and 13. So Paul is doing an incredible theological work on the life of the believer, Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8. And in Romans 8, goodness, if you've not read through that, boy, do you need to go do that. It is an incredible chapter of God's word. And right now, where we're at, he's speaking on the life of the believer in the relationship with the Spirit. With the Spirit of God dwelling in us, right? And, and the ministry and the role that it has in our lives. And it's incredible. I mean, check out verse 11, right? And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Amen? And that's not even our main verse. In other words, there's this guaranteed life that Jesus' spirit brings us as we walk according to him. Now, our, our main verse for the morning is verse 13, but I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Let's pick up at verse 12. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. One thing I want to warn you about is if this is your like first time here, I'm sorry if this seems like a hellfire and brimstone sermon. I don't intend it to be that. We don't always talk about sin. We, trust me, we do, we do a lot, but, but this is so important for us to talk through. So verse 12 says that we have no obligation to the flesh. We have no obligation to to the indwelling sin within us that's lingering around. We aren't owned by it anymore. We don't owe it anything. Actually, you know what? It does say that we owe it one thing. Scripture does say that we owe sin one thing. What's that? Death. That's it. We know its nature. We know that all it does is pay out sin. When we invest in sin, its wages, its return is a kind of death. And so instead of us experiencing the death, we ought to do what? Put to death sin. We ought to put it to death. That's, that's what Paul says here. Kind of intense, isn't it? It's pretty intense language. Like we need to put it to death? Can't you just like ignore it and put up with it? No. I mean, and Paul's not the only one who thinks this way. Look at what... The Apostle James says in his letter, he says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? They come from within us. They're raging war within us. Friends, oh goodness, the moment we wake up to the reality that you and I are living, breathing battlefields, 
And the moment we wake up to the reality that the victor of the war within has the ability to start or stop wars in the world. Guys, some of the greatest spiritual warfare that we'll ever experience in life happens here. Not out there. Here. In the heart. So if Satan is seeking to use sin to just make us miserable people and to kill our joy in Christ, then we owe sin one thing, and that is death. That's all sin ought to get from us as believers. So when, when sin kind of lurks out from the dark and peeks his head out, we drop kick it in the face. When, when sin, any kind of it, raises his head, swing, we cut it off. Now, I realize I am being a bit too graphic. I, I apologize if that's the case, and Scripture never actually says to swing it. But that's how Scripture tells us to relate to sin, to what's broken within us. Paul says in Colossians 3, he says we're to put to death the earthly things in us. And in Galatians 5, he says that we're to crucify it. More vividly, um, the words put to death, this verb, is the same word that's used of the chief priests and the religious leaders when they were seeking a way to put Jesus to death. And you remember how violent that got? We're told to do this. In fact, we're even commanded to do this. Here, Paul says that we're, we're to put sinful deeds to death. More literally, we're to keep on doing it. The, the tense of this verb suggests like continuing action. It doesn't stop. This keeps happening in our lives, putting sin to death. Now, I, I do want to pause here. Press the button. This is not to earn your salvation or to secure it. God holds your salvation secure, ultimately. So this putting sin to death is not to create or purchase our salvation. This is the result of salvation. This is the result of our regeneration, being made new. It's the effect of it. So we aren't fighting to be better people, right? We're, we're just not. We're not fighting to be better people. We're striving to enjoy Jesus. That's our, that's our supreme desire. And sin, which has lost its power to keep us from Jesus, still lingers and tries to draw us away. And so that's why we ought to have kind of like a, a warlike mentality, like we are behind enemy lines, of our own souls. To, when sin lurks in the way, we put it to death. And he says here something very unique and oh so helpful. He says, how? How does this work in the life of the believer? How do we put sin to death? It's by the Spirit. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. By the Spirit. That Spirit. You know, you know that... Um, that forgotten third person of the Trinity, right? That usually makes some of us uncomfortable because we don't know whether to call him a spirit or a ghost. And either way, it just feels kind of weird. We don't know what to talk about him, so we don't. 
Guys, the believer's whole life from start to finish is marked by and brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. Let me just quote some of what the Spirit does. I'm just reading scripture here in relation to what the Spirit does for the believer. First it says, okay, we are made alive by the Spirit. We are born again, regenerated, and perpetually renewed by the Spirit. We are justified by the Spirit. We are filled by the Spirit. We are given power by the Spirit. We are guided by the Spirit. We are encouraged by the Spirit. We are compelled by the Spirit. We are sanctified by the Spirit. We are sent out by the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit. Truths are revealed to us by the Spirit. We preach the gospel by the Spirit. So why on earth would we ever believe that it's in our strength and in our commitments to will ourselves to be better people that will actually put the nail in the coffin of our sinful habits? Why? Why do we believe that? Because everything around us says that you have enough within you to be the best version of yourself. That's not gospel. Until Jesus is in you, then it's true. Guys, everything around us says that. Isn't that the ideal of the American dream? Make yourself. Isn't that what's promised? Guys, if we try to put death, if we try to put sin to death, by ourselves and by our own strategies and the latest, you know, five steps to a better version of you post that came out, you clicked on it because it's clickbait and it actually just doesn't even help. And any other strategy other than the spirit, sin will overcome us. It will. Now don't, don't get me wrong. We've got a part to play in this. We are active in this. We're not idle. We have an active role in putting sin to death. But if it's only you involved, sin is what's going to be active, not you. So putting, putting sin to death has to involve the Spirit of God in you. Guys, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says this. Listen to Paul's words. He says, if we walk by the Spirit, we will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. You see the connection? Let me repeat that. If we walk by the Spirit, we are guaranteed, we are, will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. In other words, let me say it this way. Our relationship with sin will rise or fall directly related to our relationship with the Spirit. Not the relationship with your pastor or your small group, but with the intimately close Spirit of God dwelling in you. So when the Spirit seems strange, sin will be what's familiar. When the Spirit is a close friend, sin will be a distant enemy. So that's why Paul says here that we put sin to death by the Spirit. He says that it's done by the Spirit because the Spirit is like the Chuck Norris of the soul. Think about it. Chuck Norris cleans up town, Spirit comes in, cleans up the soul. 
Guys, I'm never going to say that again. <laughs> Kate, why didn't you tell me to take that out? For those who don't know, my wife does review my sermons. Guys, okay. For, for us to understand what the Spirit does in our lives that puts sin to death. In other words, for us to understand how this works, we kind of need to know how sin works, right? We need to know how it works in us as believers. So we're going to move on to the third part of this phrase, put to death by the Spirit, the deeds of the body. This is, this is what Paul calls sin. Now, some commentators made sure we all understood, uh, made sure I understood when I was studying this, the deeds of the body don't include walking, running, sleeping, uh, bowing and worship to God, uh, every physical thing that the body does, talking. No, that's not what's included here, though some people might take it and run it with that called asceticism. We're not talking about that. What Paul means in the context is by the deeds of the body, it's those deeds that flow out of the sin that's within. In other words, to think that the war on sin is with the physicalness and the, and the deeds that we do physically totally misses the mark. Because sin is ultimately a heart issue. That's where Jesus says it comes from. It's not just a behavior matter. It's a heart matter. So let me, let me say this, and, and let me go as, as deep as I think we can go in our understanding of this. And, and that's this. Sin is a belief problem. Sin is a problem in your beliefs. Guys, you remember um, several months ago when we talked about the anatomy of the soul? Um, Actually, you probably remember, do you remember that little snake we brought in? I'm bringing up snakes a lot today. Remember that little snake we brought in? This, I haven't, I'm not trying to keep going back to it, but this is, that was illustrating that, that our physical actions come from emotions within us or appetites or desires. But then those appetites, desires, or emotions are more rooted more deeply in our beliefs. We were scared of the snake because we believed they were dangerous. And we got that belief from somewhere along the way. And I've already told a story to show you that sometimes they are. But sin is a belief problem. It's not just a behavior problem. These emotions come. These, these sin desires come out of beliefs. So, for example, like if, if you struggle with gossip, right? Which, I, uh, yeah. Yeah. No comment there. If you struggle with gossip, the problem isn't in the gossip itself. It's in something that you're believing. And, and the sin of gossiping is just revealing that. It's like a sign. You remember that joke? Here's your sign. There's your sign. So if you watch porn or if you're flirting with someone other than your spouse, Right? Those are at the end of a long workflow that started deep within the beliefs of your heart. Guys, that's, I mean, the easiest way to explain this would be to, to, to go back to Adam and Eve. 
when they were tempted, Satan wasn't describing the, the luster and the attractiveness of the fruit. He was getting at their beliefs about what God had said. And what that turned into was their beliefs coming into question and then finding a supposed solution that was attractive and desirable. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. They gave into that temptation because of a false belief. James 1 describes sin in that nature, in the fact that it starts within us. It's a desire that starts within us, that's rooted deep in our beliefs, that give way eventually to action. And guys, more often than not, more often than not, our sin is an empty attempt to soothe some pain in our beliefs. In fact, sin often, I'll, I'll illustrate this way, how appropriate. Sin is like a pacifier. It's like a pacifier, right? There's a pain that's within us, and we try to find a way to soothe it. And the world offers us all sorts of resources and things that, that, that try to work, but they don't. Same thing with a pacifier, right? You, you've got a baby who's feeling the pain of hunger, and you, you plug a pacifier in to, to, to get her to quiet down, and, and eventually she does, but is she getting what she needs? No, it's, a, it's fake. It's not providing what they truly need. Our sin can be the same way. Our sin can be aiming at a pain that's within us. So sometimes your porn issue isn't just simply an addiction or a desire. It could very likely be rooted in the pain or your gossip or your greed, whatever it is. Which means that the problem of sin really is a problem of your faith. It's a problem of belief. So therefore, when I say that we fight sin, when I'm saying that, that we, we need to muster up and fight sin, I'm not saying that you need to muscle up and get better. I'm saying that we need to fight to believe rightly. We need to fight to believe. We need to fight to believe rightly and fight the good fight of faith. So when we feel the temptation coming up, luring us into whatever sin's expressions is, we, we pause we breathe, and we need to get into our heart. And we need to examine our beliefs. In fact, there's a, there's a book that I'm going to recommend in a little bit called Killjoys. I'll tell you a little bit more about it eventually. But the author, one of the authors, Ryan Griffith, he says this, Diagnosing the root of sinful behavior entails identifying what we foolishly believe. But guys, the heart... My goodness, the heart is crazy complex, isn't it? And it's so easy to believe things that aren't true. Which then makes heart work really complicated. Almost impossible. Not only that, but, but there's so many ways that we can express brokenness. So many ways that sin likes to express itself. 
This is why if we're ever going to fight to believe rightly, we need to identify those sign sins that show us what we're believing wrongly. So to help you and us all really excel in this, to really be in obedience, what Paul's saying here, to put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body. I've, I, in your bulletin was provided something. I don't, you probably already maybe took a look at it and were like, what on earth is this? It looks like this. This is a chart that I put together this week to explain a little bit more in depth the deeds of the body. And I hope that it proves helpful for us in our understanding of it. So one of the things I'm going to do this morning is, is I want us to um, take a look at what Christian tradition has, has dubbed the uh, d- seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins. Two clarifications. First, these are, uh, you may have heard of these. Uh, you may have even seen them in literature or in movies. Let me tell you, these aren't just little allegories, allegories in poems like the Fairy Queen or the monsters in movies like Shazam, right? These are much more grotesque and deadly than that. Another clarification, this is not a biblical list. What I mean by that is, I'm not quoting a specific passage that says, these are the seven deadly sins, blah, 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 blah. That's not in scripture. There is a passage in Proverbs that says there's seven things that the Lord despises. And then he goes on to talk about it. These seven deadly sins come from tradition. They were formed in the mind of a guy named Evagrius of Pontus in the fourth century, who actually developed eight thoughts from which all other sins could be seen to flow. And then they were later reduced down to seven by a guy named Pope Gregory I, the Great, in the sixth century. But goodness, It's an incredible diagnostic system, and it holds a lot of great value. It creates questions for us to ask and categories to help us think about, that help us see and defeat our darkest inclinations and and to identify a species of sin, which will help us address it at its root. So that's why the chart's there with the seven deadly sins. Now, I'm not going to go over the chart word for word. There's a lot here. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, in brief, talk about these seven things, these seven deadly sins, making a few notes here and there, some of which, most of which come from the book Killjoys, which is free to download from Desiring God. If you're interested in that, let me know. But let's start just kind of explaining a little bit of each of these. Let's start with pride. Can you say pride? Pride. Pride is the overinflated, self-centered ego that's elevated above others in God. Overinflated self-ego. In short, everything revolves around you. Your opinions matter more. They're more valid. Your ways are better. Guys, pride is like fighting a shapeshifter. It can, it can be so obviously egotistical as like self-exaltation and self-promotion. But pride can also disguise itself as quote-unquote humility. Through self-degradation, through self-condemnation, because ultimately those things are still still thinking that you deserve the affirmation that those things can bring. Self-pity can be prideful as well. Pride can express itself as anxiety. 
because you're not able to trust God with something, so you hold on to it. And you're elevating yourself above God's sovereign good plan. Pride can also look like vanity. It can also be being overly independent. The things that drown out pride are humility, self-forgetfulness, and even growing in greater dependence on God and His Spirit. So that's pride. Let's move on to envy. Can you say envy? Envy. Guys, envy is misery or pain at the blessing, fortune, or advantage of another. So if pride comes from a position of superiority looking down, envy is when it stands beneath another looking up. Envy involves criticizing, complaining, ingratitude, and comparison. Comparison, you know that? Oh, who's the better mom? I can't believe she is. I'm the better mom than she is, right? Who's got the best grades? Who's got more friends? Who's better looking? Who's the better parent? Who's more popular? Guys, envy is mimetic. Mimetic, M-I-M-E-T-I-C. It means it's triangular, right? There's three objects involved, three things involved. A subject, an object, and a model who gives the object its value. So the subject desires the object, but is malicious towards the person who makes the object desirable by desiring it first. Parents, you know this game. You know envy so well. Because you know when that one kid walks into a room that's just covered in toys, and there's another kid in there and they're playing with one toy, what toy does that other kid want? The one! That's envy. In adults, it can be much more complex. But in place of envy, we need God to develop in us things like love. We need gratitude. We need joy. That's envy. Let's move on to anger. Can you say anger? They're going to keep coming, all seven, so just be ready. Anger is reactionary energy aroused in defense of something released against the threat. Because anger is really reactionary. It's symptomatic of something else, something that we're considering unacceptable. We can't have it that way. Anger can be as destructive as massive, uncontrolled outbursts of rage or as silent and deadly as hatred that you keep within. To be clear, though, I want to caution you, not all anger is sin. God experiences anger, and he does not sin. The experience of anger isn't the problem. You know what the problem is? What you're defending. It's the cause that's the problem. So what we have to be angry about is what makes all the difference. So if we're angry about a defenseless child being abused, praise God, righteous anger. Now how that might flow out needs to be godly and sanctified. But if I'm angry because, you know, my ego's being attacked by somebody who's better than me, I'm defending myself. There's no place for that. 
in its purest form, in godly form, anger is love in motion to protect the object of our love. So if we want to know what we're angry about, look at the object of our affection. It turns sinful when our loves have become disordered and distorted. So sinful anger, just going to say it, sinful anger is inherently stupid. It's, it's, it's stupid because it's interpreting reality wrongly. And what we need in, in our souls to take place of that sinful anger is patience. We need peace. But most importantly, we need rightly ordered loves so that we're not getting angry about the things that shouldn't be on the list. That's anger. We're plugging along, friends. Let's go to sloth. Can you say sloth? Sloth, by definition, is the desire to control, to preserve comforts or distractions. Guys, have you ever watched a sloth? It is incredibly slow. You think it's lazy, but you know what its primary concern is? Number one, itself. This one is complex, though, and it might surprise you. Sloth can express itself through being just a lazy bum or a workaholic. A workaholic can be as, as slothful as a non-worker who's caught in their basement not doing anything. At sloth's core is self-centeredness. It's seeking to indulge the comforts through what it can control. So the, the sluggard who isn't at work at all or the workaholic, they're maintaining control to preserve their comforts. And guys, sloth isn't de desireless, right? We think of sloths, we think, man, they're just totally apathetic. They don't care about a thing. Unless, unless it's like zombie-ish sloth, which is possible. They're zombie-like, right? Where, where you, they only sleepwalk through life. They only care about satisfying every craving. They're totally apathetic to anything other than that. There is that level of sloth. Don't get me wrong. But sloth has desires. They're just so wrong. And, it, and those aren't fixed by working more. No, sloth is smothered by selflessness. It's smothered by diligence. It's smothered by being caught up in the mission of God. Living intentionally. That's sloth. Let's move to greed. Can you say greed? Greed is the inordinate desire for wealth and possessions. Greed believes that wealth can solve all its problems. So it loves wealth. It loves money and covets possessions, even above God, which makes it idolatry. Quick caution, money isn't wrong. Having a lot of money isn't wrong. Working to have more money isn't wrong either. It's just not. God created humanity to be vice regents in creation. He told us to bear fruit, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. He said, go after it. Desire to acquire in a healthy way. But greed uses wealth and money and possessions for what it can't provide our souls. 
Greed isn't just a sin that stalks the rich and wealthy. No, greed can mark those in utter poverty. You can have nothing and still be incredibly greedy. Because it isn't about what you possess, it's about what possesses you. And what bleeds out greed are things like contentment and generosity and compassion. That's greed. Let's move to gluttony. Can we say gluttony? Boy, this one's going to be sensitive. Gluttony is the inordinate craving for or misuse of food. In other words, this is food worship. We're not talking about the problem of an expanding waistline, though that might be a symptom of gluttony. This is concerned with believing food can be something for you that it can't. Just like greed does with money, gluttony does with food. Gluttony looks to food to satisfy some deeper craving or even a problem. But here's here's the problem that we can have with this. Reducing gluttony to just simply overeating can create a false sense of guilt over the occasional feast. Right? So the, the point isn't uh, that, that we ought to feel guilty this Thursday when we have to unbutton that top button on our pants to provide that extra inch, or you just came prepared with sweatpants and you don't have to worry about it because it expands with you as you go. I'm not talking about that. It is okay to very sporadically feast. And in that way, you can delight in God's goodness and his provision. In fact, most of the Jewish holidays were oriented around feasting, but they were holidays, which meant they didn't happen all the time. Check out Deuteronomy 14 in your free time. God tells them to go, out, out, go all out in their feast. But no, gluttony has to deal with what we use food for or just the persistent overindulgence in it. And the one who indulges in food in excess can be just as guilty of gluttony as the one who is overly legalistic and obsessive, even snobby about their delicate diets. We need to be careful here because our American culture has normalized this with the food portions that we get, with what's cheap and what's expensive in the marketplace. But the problem isn't out there. The problem is here. What combats the sin of gluttony are things like self-control, gratitude, satisfaction. That's gluttony. Let's move to the last one. And all God's people said, amen. Lust. Can you say lust? Lust is sexual desire for or experience of the forbidden. So this deals with the opposite of sexual morality. You see the trend between greed, gluttony, and lust? It's using good gifts wrongly. Lust here is dealing with the opposite of sexual morality. Sexual morality is the enjoyment of a really good gift of sex. 
the way God designed it. God designed sex to be really enjoyed in a covenant marriage between a man and a woman for all of life. The desires for anything other than that are lust. From pornography to homosexuality, it robs you of your joy. So any, any form of sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God's word is lust. And trust me, it just doesn't satisfy. It's deadly. So in place of lust, we need love, right? We need to love the object, not abuse it and use it. We need self-control. We need purity. Those are the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, right? Guys, these are more than just sinful behaviors. They're all rooted in heart beliefs gone rogue. And it's at the level of the heart that we need to put these to death anytime that we see them. But guys, I said this, heart work is incredibly complex. And by ourselves, it's impossible to put these to death. But church, are we by ourselves? No. No, we have God's spirit and he says he understands our hearts. He examines them and he tests them. So when you and I see greed raising its head in our lives, we, we don't need to stop loving money so much. No, that's not the issue. We need to run to the Spirit of God. We need to get on the operating table. We need to plead with the great physician to do surgery in our hearts. We need to cry out, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive thing in me. Show me what I'm believing wrongly according to your word and help me to believe what's true as you promised you would. We need to do this by the Spirit. Will we be perfect in this? No. Is perfection what marks faith? No. The mark of faith is not that we never sin. The mark of faith is that we fight. We fight to believe what's true. When envy or sloth stirs up within us, we're no longer slaves to it. We've been set free from its authority over our lives so we can pause. You can pause. You can breathe. Take a second and set your mind on the Spirit of God. Let the Spirit of God that's with you in that moment show you what you're believing, how you're using this for some solution to solve pain or soothe it, whatever it is, and ask the Spirit to convince you of what's true, reminding you again of God's word, then and there you will put sin to death by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, you and I are forever loved. We're forever pursued we're forever provided for and freed by a deeper, stronger, truer love. A lover who's larger than our past, 
who's stronger than our weaknesses and better than any that we've ever known before. So my final word to you this morning is not going to be, be careful of lust, be careful of pride, be aware of gluttony. Though those are deadly sins and it would be a good thing for you to pay attention. That's not the final word. And the other final word cannot be, just muscle up and stop it. No. The final word of this message must be the word of the gospel itself, which says, God has the power to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. To reorder the loves of your heart to give you right faith, to heal brokenness within us. All done by the precious spirit that fills you. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.